3: I'm Carl Quintanilla. You're listening to CNBC's Tech Check. Our show is live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. Good Tuesday morning. Welcome to Tech Check. I'm Carl Quintanilla with John Fortin and Deirdre Bosa. Today, stocks fall yet again on the heels of the worst first half performance since 1970 and then another down week last week. And yet, as Sarah just said, the Nasdaq outperforming today will talk growth versus the larger market. Within that, Tesla disappoints over the weekend. The company's win streak of record deliveries comes to an end after China lockdowns weighed on numbers in April and May. It is a theme of supply chain slowdowns, and we'll talk about that with Apple and Amazon today. And speaking of Amazon, Andy Jassy marking a year as CEO. We're going to break down his leadership and the outlook for the company and the stock, d d hard to believe it has already been a year.
0: Uh, already been a year. We're going to kick off though today's feed with Tesla and what may become the theme of this quarter. Supply chain difficulties and consumer spending uncertainty. Those disappointing delivery numbers sending Tesla shares lower this morning and ending a nearly two year streak of record deliveries. Philip Bow Abou- Phil joins us with that. Phil, uh, I'm a little surprised. I was more focused on that blockbuster June number. Uh, strongest production month in the company's history. I thought the street might be focused more on that also.
4: Well, I think the street is focused on that, Deirdre, but you have to also take it in totality in terms of, look, Q2, we knew the challenges in China. As you take a look at these numbers, keep in mind that this is a company that most thought was going to deliver between 600 or 256 and 261,000 vehicles, delivering just over 254,000 vehicles. Uh, but it was the highest production rate ever in june monthly production rate in june so clearly you see the momentum building as the company is working towards increasing production china was the the big drag we knew about that in april and in uh, the beginning of may when they had the COVID lockdown that clearly impacted production which obviously impacted deliveries there uh, but as you look at tesla and you move forward from here the the real question becomes do they hit the 1.4 million vehicles delivered this year? Most of the analysts notes that are out this morning are saying, yeah, forget about Q2 in terms of it having a long-term impact. We still think that as they ramp production in the second half of this year, it will get to 1.4 million vehicles delivered. And remember, Tesla has never given more definitive guidance than what they gave a couple of years ago when they said, look, in the future, we expect to grow our annual deliveries by 50%, give or take. It may be a little below 50% one year, maybe a little above 50% one year, and 1.4 million uh, would be above that uh, 50% threshold, roughly speaking. So as you take a look at shares of Tesla, down bouncing close to that 52-week low, the focus for the analyst is going to be the Q2 results on July 20th, what happens with margins. We know they're probably going to face some pressure. We heard the comments from Elon Musk about both of the new gigafactories and how they're burning through cash. That we knew was going to impact and have some, put some pressure on mm-hmm. margins. To what extent, we'll find out in a couple of weeks.
0: Yeah, I think he called it them gigantic money furnaces, uh, Phil. But again, yeah. you know, in everything that you just went through, I'm not seeing I'm not hearing at least a ton of reason for that pessimism. If they are going to hit that lowered target, but also going into 2023, Phil, um, they're ramping up Giga Austin and Giga Berlin. Um, so yep. is there any doubt that those ramps are going to be as strong as we've seen in Shanghai?
4: Well, it depends on a couple of factors. One, we know that Germany uh, is, is going to be adding another shift. There's a report out that they'll add another shift. I think most people are more comfortable with Germany because the battery cells there, the 2170 battery cells, different than the more advanced, the longer-range cells in Austin. And that's a challenge in terms of having enough of the new battery cells in Austin to ramp up production as much as expected. I will be curious to see what happens as we get the numbers more definitively from a number of analysts about U.S. sales over the next you know, couple of days with regard to uh, how much market share they have in the U.S., because I think that they are increasing. Remember, they don't break it down by country. That's going to be the thing that everybody's going to be focused on.
3: Phil, appreciate that. Uh, What a weekend of news. That's our Phil LeBeau talking some Tesla. Let's stick with the name and talk some growth stocks more broadly today. That part of the market is actually catching a relative bid. Stocks like Datadog, Zoom, DocuSign, all at the top of the NASDAQ. Joining us this morning, Threadneedle Ventures founder and managing partner Ann Barry is with us. and it's great to have you back. Just on Tesla, uh, it sounds like you remain net skeptical just given uh, either production pressures or the idea that others are going to catch up on a relative basis.
1: I have stayed out of Tesla and I'm going to continue to do so, uh, e- even despite the strong uh, June production numbers that Dee was talking about. The problem I have with Tesla right now is instead of looking at it in a vacuum and just its own production capabilities and what it's growing like, what's the broader landscape doing? There was a, a great report that came out from Bank of America talking about the car wars and looking at Ford and General Motors looking to catch up and take overall share from Tesla over the next five to 10 years. And I look at that stock. I look, for example, at Ford trading at 0.3 times price to earnings to growth ratio. I look at Tesla north of 1.67. I look at the relative valuation. My money goes to Ford and it goes to the GMs.
3: Yeah. People like to talk about second mover advantage and they always invoke Apple as an example. But I, I don't know yeah. how, how much can we equate uh, GM and Ford's prowess with Apple's manufacturing prowess?
1: Well, I think one of the things that, that Ford and GM has going for it is it's already they've already got strong balance sheets. They've already got free cash flow being generated by the legacy business. and I think what they started doing slowly but really caught up doing much more quickly is redeploying their capital fast. They're not Apple historically, but they seem to have learned their lessons and they're moving. and I think the second mark, uh, second move advantage piece is, hiss, is hitting on a ton of other growth stocks as well.
5: The whole growth stock picture to me, Looks a little weird. I mean, in the past month, Snowflake uh, is higher by more than 14 percent, DoorDash up uh, better than 5 percent. There's some other things that are down. But overall, to start this week, uh, I'm looking at China lockdowns and consumer spending. Some of the areas around Shanghai seem to be potentially locking down again, which would be a concern on the supply side. And then... All these stories about consumer spending and sort of uh, U.S. consumers spending down the savings that built up during COVID makes me wonder what happens in the second half of the year since so much depends on whether consumers continue to spend. Uh, are you watching those things as you make your uh, you know, position yourself for the second half?
1: Absolutely. There are a couple of things I'm looking at at the moment. So, one is looking at what consumer default rates are on some of the loans, whether it's auto loans, whether it's credit card loans, to exactly this point that we've seen a degradation in the strength of the consumer balance sheet in recent months as inflation has continued to tear uh, through consumer savings. And the second piece, too, is I'm sitting in Europe at the moment. Europe is in likely recession. Uh, To your point on China. There has been some uh, pop-up in growth, but the growth outlook broadly globally has slowed down. And I don't think that's been fully priced in yet. What that means for revenue, not only for the growth stocks, but for the broader U.S. market, where significant revenue is generated overseas. And now we've got a double whammy of slowing consumer demand internationally and a strong dollar, which just doesn't help the domestic um, domestic currency Uh, revenue generation uh, and and just for the export market generally. So I'm pretty nervous coming into the second half.
0: And uh, what do you make of the tech trade today? Do you trust it? I'm looking at the top three gainers (laughs) on the NASDAQ 100. It's Datadog, Zoom, DocuSign. You were just laying out some of the concerns. They aren't as susceptible to the stronger dollar. I see the 10-year at 2.8 right now. Do you think that this can last? I'm not optimistic about this lasting D and just to hone in specifically
1: on Zoom and DocuSign, those two are names I think are particularly vulnerable to this issue of second mover advantage. Those were product innovators during the work-from-home phenomenon. Now, uh, remote signing of legal documents, now using video conferencing. These are widgets that belong in the product suites of much stronger companies like the Microsofts of the world. So I think businesses like the Zooms, like the DocuSigns, frankly, like the Affirms of the world, that our single product uh, businesses have got a little bit further to fall. And I particularly do not trust the pop we're seeing in those kinds of names right now.
3: Hey, finally, Anne, it's a a little bit far afield from today's price action per se, but I do wonder, uh, we're going to start talking about politics and the midterms a lot more uh, in the next few months as we work our way through Q3. Does that change the calculus on on reg risk or anything else regarding uh, technology, you think, for the back half of the year?
1: Where I see the biggest reg risk and um, an enormous amount that can hinge on who wins the midterms and what that indicates for the presidential election is when it comes to Go back to tesla anything to do with climate tech so on the private side of the market i'm seeing continued deployment of capital into not only electronic vehicles but also into food tech into uh food supply security into um places like cyber security that have been real focus areas for domestic um, national security policy depending on what happens in the midterms and depending therefore on government budget allocations for things like climate policy electronic vehicles alternative energy i think we need to be watching out for those at a macro level because i think they're at risk depending on how the midterms go
3: yeah, that, that's going to come into sharper relief uh, for sure, uh, and maybe something to talk about next time. Great stuff.
5: Thank you, Ann Ann Berry. Okay. Now let's take a closer look at the biggest tech name, Apple. It arguably faces both supply chain headwinds in Asia and a potential slowdown in consumer spending. But our next guest argues the stock is among the best positioned for this macro environment. Morgan Stanley's Eric Woodring, who is taking over coverage of Apple from Katie Huberty. Joins us now with more, Eric. Uh, is it because of the margins that Apple has been able to maintain over time, the loyalty, uh, the innovation, the diversified model, or something else? Why do you think they're well positioned here,
6: John? Thank you for uh, thanks for having me on. It, it's probably all of those that you listed. Again, I think customer loyalty at this point is extremely important. Over ninety-five percent of iPhone customers typically come back to purchase another iPhone. Um, you also have to keep in uh, keep in mind that they have a, an installed base of over a billion users. Those are highly engaged users that continue to spend on the platform. So it's diversification, it's high customer loyalty, um, it's great products and innovation. Uh, it's a bit of all of the above. Um, and Apple, I'd mentioned on the on the on the PL side, it's also cash generation and ability to spend through cycles.
5: Right, lots of cash. Uh, Apple, unlike a lot of stocks has managed to be down just I think about 1% over the past 12 months. Um, And I I wonder if they need another narrative shift for a long time. uh, There was a lot of counting of iPhone units and they successfully shifted people to pay more attention to services Mm -hmm. in this consumer spending environment. Do you expect them to shift the narrative again in some way or another? And if they do, what would it be?
6: No, not necessarily. Again, th- this is still about uh, selling products and then monetizing your installed base. Maybe, uh, maybe the right way of thinking about this, though, is uh, if we think about today, roughly on average, the average consumer uh, for Apple spends about a dollar per day on the technology platform that seemingly controls their life. Um, what if that consumer was willing to pay more? How much do you spend for coffee per day, or travel, or lunch? And so there is a narrative to, uh, to be made here that the, the consumer is underspending as it relates to Apple products and services. And there's a long gr- growth runway ahead of you as you expand into new adjacencies or even new markets altogether.
0: Eric, it's Steve. Uh, good to have you on. Customers, they can remain loyal, but they can also push off upgrades. So in a recessionary environment, how big a risk is slowing demands of that core product, the iPhone?
6: No, key, key question here. So we did an analysis that looked at uh, the, the correlation between iPhone, iPad, Mac, and uh, wearables purchases in the S&P 500. And what we found is that the iPhone is actually most staples-like of all of Apple's products. Correlation is about 0.5. Um, that is the least positive correlation of, among all of Apple's products. You also have to remember the iPhone is really, again, the device that controls your life if you're an Apple user. um, Perhaps there will be some users that push their upgrade, uh, but we do think the iPhone is more staple-like and therefore at a higher probability of upgrading over the next 12 months.
3: Eric, you know, one thing um, uh, from Katie that we always talked about was her longer view that, especially through COVID and the reinvention of, of the enterprise and hybrid work, that corporate demand, enterprise demand for technology would be robust out, out beyond the medium term. Is that something mm-hmm. you are incrementally more skeptical about?
6: No, I wouldn't say I'm more skeptical. I just think it's something that we need to watch. Again, as we uh, head into a potential downturn, um, these are all typically purchases that are made, uh, big dollar purchases that are made typically a a CapEx purchase over an OpEx purchase. And so we just need to be very mindful of the data points that come through and be cognizant of the fact that... uh, you know, one data point doesn't make a trend, uh, but we need to follow that very closely. So um, I wouldn't say cautious. Um, I would say precautionary and uh, tr- watching that very closely, whether that's Apple or any of the other uh, IT hardware related stocks in my universe.
5: So Eric, what's, particularly when it comes to Apple, the biggest mm-hmm. downside risk? Does it have to do with uh, iPhone units out the gate? Does it have to do with demand, supply, what? Because we're, we're heading into that September time period where we expect to see uh, a lot of new product released.
6: Yep. So I, I think it's demand related. Supply is more of a short-term temporary challenge that could very well come back, but that's hard to discount for us as analysts. Um, but it really is uh, therefore demand. And so I'd, I'd almost caution it more being the discretionary part of Apple's portfolio. You know, an Apple Watch is a bit more discretionary. Uh, Maybe AirPods are certain services. And so those are really the segments that we need to watch. But obviously, be mindful of the fact that the Mac or the iPhone, products that are typically primary compute compute devices, um, could be, quote unquote, weaker in a tougher spending environment. Um, But again, hold up relatively better than some of the other discretionary like products that Apple sells.
5: All right. Eric, thank you. Thank Good you very you. much
6: for having me.
0: And coming up one year since Jeff Bezos handed the reins over to Andy Jassy, does the company face a perfect storm of global challenges or is it uniquely situated to outperform over the next two years? We will discuss. TechCheck is just getting started. Today marks one year since Andy Jassy took over the reins of Amazon and what a year it's been underneath the pandemic boom. Challenges were brewing and now Jassy's Amazon faces overcapacity, unions, executive departures, some of the challenges just listed here. And Amazon has shed some $650 billion in market value over his tenure so far, and it just closed out its worst quarter since 2000. So as Bezos might put it, guys, Jassy's year two should operate like day one. They need to be nimble. Um, They need to adjust. John, which Amazon typically has been very good at. But I would argue that this time it is a much bigger company. It's the second largest employer in the country. And its list of challenges are very unique.
5: I'm not sure they're so unique, Dee. I mean, so I've been thinking a lot about Amazon, as I tend to do. (laughs) And, uh, you know, e-commerce in general has been going through uh, a rough slog. And so I was looking to see how bad Amazon's stock performance had been Relative to the rest of e commerce, it turns out it's just about at the level of its pandemic high, which puts it as good as or better than Shopify, Etsy, Wayfair, eBay, Big Commerce, Walmart. Walmart's a pretty big company, too. So th- the challenges that Amazon faces are significant, but I might argue that they're challenges that the entire market faces. Mm. Unions, Apple's got union issues too. Overcapacity, sure, but I mean, speaking of overcapacity, last September, uh, I, I talked with Andy Jassy in his first interview as CEO. Here's a bit of how we got to this point.
3: We feel like we experienced probably two to three years of growth in 18 months. And so uh, I don't, you couldn't probably responsibly plan for, for a pandemic or the amount of capacity it's needed. Just to give you an idea, John, we spent the first 24 or 25 years of Amazon building a very broad fulfillment center network. And over the last 18, to 18 months to two years, we've had to double that footprint. So it, it, it brought on unprecedented
4: demand.
5: So, yeah, they got their ankles broken on demand, Carl, coming out of the pandemic. I'm sure that the Fed can sympathize there. But with their size and with their diversification and business model, they might be better positioned than others to figure out what's next.
3: Yeah, we're going to find out uh, definitely with um, some of these inventory levels. I don't know if you saw the story in the journal over the weekend, D, about Target and Walmart inventories mm-hmm. that are bloated and leading to boom times for liquidators. You know, Bezos yeah. always said by the time a quarter is printed, uh, that quarter has been in the works for three years. So it's curious to think about the things that Jassy implementing now, what that says about the year 2025. Yeah.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And it's certainly as we head into the second half of this year, what was it, $10 billion in extra costs because of that overcapacity, John? One question I want to pose to you, though, you don't think the labor issue is different now. I don't think you can compare Amazon's unionization efforts and what's going on there to what's going on at Apple or even Starbucks. It's the second largest employer in the country, and they've dealt with it in a very different way. Tim Cook has gone to seen union supporters. Andy Andy Jassy has stayed out of it, and the tone that they're taking is a lot harsher.
5: Yeah. Well, retail stores and warehouses, way different. But same uh, tight labor market causing them challenges there. We'll see how they solve it.
0: Well, joining us now uh, on what we can expect from Jassy and Amazon in year two is early Amazon investor, Madrona Venture Group managing partner, Matt McIlwain. Matt, it's great to have you with us. You've known Jassy for a long time. What do you think is at the top of his priority list as he heads into year 2.
8: Well, I think at the top, of, thank you for having me, and I think at the top of his list is digesting all this investment they've made over the last couple of years and then charting some next generation paths. There's just so much ahead, so much opportunity whether it's in AWS which he built from from zero to 75 billion dollar business in 15 years to, you know, as you say, kind of the core stores business and the marketplace business, and even some of these more emerging categories like media and, and advertising. So there's quite a lot to do, quite a lot of complexity, and I think he's, uh, he's driving across those areas.
0: Yeah, Matt, we tend to talk a lot about the businesses that Amazon has been very successful in, such as AWS, which Andy Jassy pioneered. Advertising now has quietly grown into this sort of behemoth in the space. But one business that hasn't maybe lived up to expectations or even its investments is grocery. What do you think Andy Jassy is going to do with grocery um, as it really kind of struggles to gain market share?
8: Well, I think they've already pruned in the stores business. So more broadly, that was one of the most interesting moves of its first year by shutting down a number of the smaller and and clearly not performing to expectation stores business. But I think in grocery specifically, they're going to stick to it. And they have the platform of Whole Foods. It was the largest acquisition that the company ever made, I think approximately $15 billion. And that is a platform for mixing the physical world and the digital world. And I think they're really only getting started there in terms of experimentation.
5: Uh, Matt, I wonder what you think about the uh, executive ranks. When you get a new CEO and you start to have uh, people getting promoted, you also start to have people leaving. But uh, in what ways are you, if you are watching for the types of uh, different personalities and capabilities that Andy puts into place, and then how that even carries through to how he deals with these labor challenges that Amazon is sure to have as they say they want to be the best employer in the world?
8: Hey, hey, hey John, those are great questions. I do think they're pretty different. And, and the first one on the executive team, I think you're exactly right. You know, when Charlie Bell did not get picked as the CEO of, of, of AWS and Adam Solipsky came back to Amazon, Charlie went to Microsoft. You know, you uh, saw some changes here. where You know, Dave Clark left and Doug Harrington gets promoted. And so unfortunately, you know. Alicia and, and others also then you know move on. So I think that's a normal type of thing that happens. Uh, but I think what Andy's done very well there is have folks like Adam, folks like Doug, Jeff Blackburn, who also came back really just before Andy took, uh, took the CEO role, people that he's known for a long time and trusts and can work together with. I think the thing to look for there is what are the next generation of up and coming folks that are being cultivated into leadership ranks, to the S team, et cetera. On the labor issues, I I mean, I I think it's very notable that one of the the very first things that Andy did was created these two new leadership principles, you know, Earth's best employer being one, and then success and scale, you know, uh, bring back, you know, bring more responsibility. And so that combination of responsibility and Earth's best employer, you know, their track record is uh, complex because of the different types of jobs and labor that they have as an organization. But they do have you know, the $18 you know, wage, you know, minimum wage for them, which is twice the national minimum wage. They have quite strong benefits. I think the hard thing there is that they do expect a lot of their employees. And so how do you balance the
5: expectation of a lot right. with actually providing strong compensation? Well, and then my, my other question is on third-party retailers, which have been such an important part of Amazon's growth. They're also a big part of their exposure to all sorts of concerns about their size and do they have too much influence. What do you think the challenge is, the opportunity is for Amazon to uh, perhaps grow that business, placate uh, the the third party uh, user base, and maybe protect the flank from this different model that Shopify is pushing as they try to build out their logistics capability? Well,
8: again, a a terrific question. And to to summarize it, what what you're looking for is opportunities that you can create kind of win-win aggregation and abstraction. I mean, let's even think about AWS, right? It is an aggregation of a lot of hardware that shows up in data centers and gets delivered as a service so that a whole bunch of developers and people that need to run applications on the other end of that can run their applications. Then you take the example that you're giving, which is the third-party marketplace. Again, there's an aggregation of warehouse and logistics capabilities and financial services capabilities and, and of course, customers. And that's the other side of the equation, that you've aggregated customers so that I, as a small business, can, can get incredible new access to customers, hundreds of millions of customers on the platform. How you do that fairly, how you do that without, you know, you know, kind of catching the eye of regulators and more importantly, sustaining that group of customers, in this case, the small businesses, is the balancing act. But it comes to this combination of having good aggregation and abstraction that reduces the frictions so that whoever's on either side of that marketplace effectively, whether it's AWS or, you know, the third party sellers marketplace is going to win for the long term
3: finally, Matt, you know, the journal took a crack at how Amazon was faked out by the pull forward in demand during COVID and how the algorithms uh, didn't have enough to, to see that this could abruptly end. A lot of that was under Bezos's tenure. I wonder, do we think that would have happened also uh, if Jassy had been at the helm?
8: Well, I think that those kinds of very long lead time decisions are hard. And you know, I think what they they've been used to making long term forward investments, and you've seen these cycles where Amazon, you know, is uh, has years where their cash flow negative, and then years where they're sig- much more significantly cash flow positive because they're in these investing cycles. I think that they were they bet a little too strongly. Uh, I think we can all acknowledge on this particular investment cycle in terms of capacity. But I think they would have rather been over capacity here than under capacity and falling short and meeting the needs of their customers. Again, whether it's you and I that enjoy those, you know, kind of two day or even one day delivery services or all the different businesses that depended on them to have the servers in those data centers so they could run their applications on AWS. So I think they bet a little strong there. Mm-hmm. I, I think it would have been really hard to dial that in exactly right. And we'll see yeah. how they moderate it now with Andy and the team going forward.
0: Matt, when it comes to uh, the labor issues that we were talking a little bit about earlier, um, what do you make of their strategy? It seems to be um, not all that pleasant with the union organizers, and perhaps Amazon underestimated a few of them. Has there been any miscalculation here? Does Amazon have a choice? Could they have gone the Apple route and worked productively with them, or do they have to fight the union battles?
8: Yeah, I, I you know, I think a lot of those things get... Adjudicated in the media, and I think the reality may be different. Uh, you know, I, I can just you know speak confidently that Andy deeply cares about every single person that works for the company. Um, and he has that genuineness that I think you know transcends any given policy or or important issue. Uh, I do not think it was an accident that he chose to add these two um, you know leadership principles, uh, Earth's best employer, and having responsibility in the world. And you think about even things like the, you know, the climate pledge arena, which is, you know, backed up by the two billion dollar climate pledge fund. And you look holistically at Amazon and I think that sometimes you can say, hey, we've got to expect a lot of our out of our employees and we're going to reward them well for that as we go deliver on things. And on this particular issue of labor, I think that they will try their very hardest to work through it Mm -hmm. and attract and retain the best people for the long term.
0: Yeah, we'll see if year two brings uh, maybe a different tact. Matt McElwain from Madrona Partners, thank you.
3: Thank you very much. Let's get a news update this morning with Christina Parts Hey, Christina.
0: Carol, good morning, everyone. The euro has dropped to a 20-year low against the U.S. dollar after a survey showed investor sentiment, sentiment in Europe fell to its lowest level since the early days of the pandemic, signaling what's being called an inevitable recession. The dollar is also being helped by the Federal Reserve's interest rate hikes as well. Yum Brand says today it is close to selling its Russian KFC business. It has 1,000 locations in the country. Most are operated under franchise deals. Yum sold its Russian Pizza Hut locations back in May. BioNTech has erased an early loss of close to 5% and is now trading slightly higher. The German company is being sued over intellectual property rights connected to the mRNA technology that BioNTech and Pfizer used in their COVID vaccine. While BioNTech chairs are holding up, Pfizer stock is not falling more than 3%. Back up to you, Carl. All right,
3: Christina, thanks very much. IGV's fallen more than 31% this year, and our next guest says things could get even worse. Keep your eye on crude. Uh, As we've been talking a couple of moments ago, dips below $100 a barrel for the first time since May 11th. Uh, Some uh, estimates that if that were to be sustained, you could be seeing a decline in gas prices in the neighborhood of 35 to 50 cents a gallon in the weeks ahead. We'll talk more about that in
7: a bit. Stay with us. Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary work day until... The Singapore presentation is at 3 a.m. The office was shocked. (laughs) That's when we sleep. Maya made it less scary... (laughs) Canva. <laughs> I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at Canva.com. Designed for work.
9: This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you.
3: Energy energy sector now down 5% as you got uh, WTI closer to 99 now than $100. And with the Nasdaq down more than 20% over the last three months, just how much negative sentiment has been priced in? Our senior markets commentator Mike Santoli is at Post 9 now with the breakdown. Mike. Yeah,
10: plenty, I guess, is the answer. Maybe not enough. It's actually going on eight months since the NASDAQ actually peaked in November of last year. Take a look at what it's done to valuations within and outside of tech. The NASDAQ 100 here uh, in blue. Uh, You've pretty much retraced all the uh, increase in, in the forward multiple going back to the pandemic. So we're in this sort of 2018-19 range of how uh, the NASDAQ 100 was valued. Semis has been the most dramatic here. That's in uh, orange right there. It's actually uh, now looking on a forward basis somewhat cheaper than the overall market, the S&P 500. Obviously, there's downside earnings risk all over the place. Things like Intel uh, and Micron screening out very cheap or, or dragging down the valuations there, but it's telling, obviously, software the big outlier, was the most expensive part, was really the concentrated locus of a lot of the uh, excess in valuations and investor crowding. And that's given way, but we're still expensive. It's still 30 times forward earnings. That's your Microsoft's Adobe Salesforces, John. That's where you're still seeing uh, persistent uh, expensive readings.
5: Great setup, Mike. Thanks. Now let's look ahead to tech's second half. Our next guest says it could get worse for both private and public companies, especially those that aren't showing profitability or a clear path to it. Here to discuss, former VMware COO Sanjay Poonin. Sanjay, uh, always great to see you. So we were just talking about Andy Jassy's uh, first year at Amazon. So maybe within the context of that to start, the, the biggest risk that I keep thinking about in the second half is that the consumer runs out of gas, almost literally. Uh, Debt rising, savings dropping, prices stubbornly high. When do we see whether tech is getting influenced by that, perhaps even through earnings guidance? Is there a particular bellwether that you'd be looking at?
2: Uh, Good morning, John, Deidre and Carl. Thank you for having me on. Yeah, I think the wise approach would be uh, to it's sort of like the story of Joseph in the Old Testament. We've had seven years of harvest and then seven years of famine. We've had 13 years of incredible harvest since 2009. Uh, my advice to companies is to plan for things going further south and prepare for the worst. Um, you know, the only thing that's going up right now is inflation and price. Everything else going down. Now it's not quite as bad as 2009, when the S&P 500 went down 50 percent uh, and Nasdaq 75 percent plus, and same in 2000-2002. But I think if you are a private company or a public company, those glory days of just growth without a path to cash flow positive um, are over. If you are a private company and you're looking for skyrocket by valuations during your uh, middle to late stage cri- uh, with funding rounds, um, you know you'll get a rude awakening when you either go public or when you go for your next round. So everyone's got to get the memo that profitability is really what counts. And I think it's not all doom and gloom. Great companies are formed during recession. Um, And I think when you look at 2000, 2002, you had companies like Salesforce and Google that were formed. 2009, companies innovative like Uber and Airbnb. So I'll be watching the next few weeks for pre-announcements this week, how the earnings of the cloud companies, security companies, shape up in July and August.
5: Well, it it looks to me like a lot of e-commerce names have suffered in this market slowdown a lot more than the big enterprise software names have. So I I sort of wonder, and, and of course, Amazon's got both, so maybe you can address that within the context of Amazon. um, How likely is it that we start to see some of the follow-through effects of a slowdown uh, coming more to the enterprise software players?
2: I would argue we've already seen some of it. I mean, of course, there've been ones when I look at, I put out a tweet a little later today about, you know, the S&P 500 and NASDAQ and the top 100, 200 names in the tech space, how they've done. Companies like ServiceNow, Palo Alto Networks, Um, A few of the security players have done reasonably well. But if you look at the high flyers that were valued, probably a little bit irrationally, Snowflake, Datadog, they've come down quite a bit. Now, probably at the valuations they are today, they're probably the most. They've got long term potential. Don't get me wrong. These are incredible companies, but their valuations were skyrocketed. I think the same thing. You look into the dot com and the 9 11 crisis, a lot of these B2B marketplaces and these dot coms that didn't have a viable future, they collapsed. The e-commerce segment um, had, obviously, an incredible pandemic surge. That's not sustainable. And your segment just now, John, with Andy Jassy spoke that. But I'm still very bullish on Andy Jassy and his future. Everything in their world of Amazon takes five to 10 years. You read his shareholder letter. It's an absolute classic, just like all of Jeff Bezos' letters. And he talked about innovation and uh, the principle of really also focusing on the employees. I'm very bullish on their future in the long term, especially businesses like AWS.
0: Yeah, some of those day one vibes. Um, Sanjay, when you look at some of those high flyers, as you called them, the pandemic darlings, like Zoom, DocuSign, um, that weren't really able to expand their products or platforms during the pandemic, what do they do now? Do you think they look to pick up a company at these valuations, if they have the cash to do so, or do they look for a sale of themselves, perhaps?
2: Zoom tried to with Five9. I think with every company, you have to learn, I learned this as SAP and VMware, you're act two and you're act three. Um, I think Zoom has a better chance now, whether it's Five9 or other approaches, to build a unified communications platform. A DocuSign, I haven't seen that act too, but there are adjacencies that they could do. I'm uh, involved as a strategic advisor to a company like iCertis that does contract lifecycle management. They're doing that really well. That's an adjacency to some of these other areas that are core to the digital e signature platform. So I think they're always, as the management teams, you have to ask yourself as a CEO and a leader, if you have tapped your act one, what's your act two? How do you build a platform? How do you go back to those customers if you've got them loyal and continue to grow that platform? When you build, move from a single product to a platform, there's a viable future for any company.
5: All right, gives a lot to chew on. As always, Sanjay Poonen, thank you.
2: Thank you, John.
3: Keep your eye on HP today. Evercore making a quote, no drama downgrade of the name to neutral. Uh, The firm bearish on PC trends going into the second half of the year. Oil below 99, 10-year below 2.8. Tech Check is back in two minutes.
5: Cron shares perking up this morning after disappointing guidance last week sent things lower. But CEO Sandra Morotra is bullish, telling CNBC this morning he expects a record year for consumer demand.
2: In the face of the weaker consumer demand and a weaker macroeconomic uncertain environment, Micron is taking concrete actions in terms of limiting our supply and accelerating, hopefully, the return to the demand and supply environment sometime in our fiscal year 23. And what I would also say is that the long-term demand trends gem are healthy. We just delivered a record quarter and we are on our way to deliver a record fiscal year. There's
5: been a rough first half for chip stocks as supply chain issues have weighed on the sector. The SMH now 40% off of the highs of the years, headed a bit lower today uh, as NVIDIA, Applied Materials, Analog Devices, AMD, a lot of other names hit 52 week lows, Carl, all kind of relative though, right? Because they had been soaring so high uh, in the past and then a lot of this is out of sync with uh, the, the commentary that we've heard from Marvell from Qualcomm about industrial IoT, about share gain in the cloud. It makes you wonder just where things will be in a couple years. Yeah,
3: that longer-term story, automotive, throw that in there as well. Uh, As John says, the broad-based weakness in semis, but it's semi-cap. The LAM research is in the AMATs uh, and the KLAs that longer-term would suffer if, in fact, CapEx continued to decline.
0: Yeah. And Sanjay Marota very much trying to make the point with investors that they are looking to the long term and switch to what he calls high value solutions. Some of those new uh, sectors that are going to see secular growth growth over the years ahead. Um, Also, just focusing on how quickly they can pivot. He says he's never seen the supply demand picture. Uh, turn so quickly in the industry. So continue to watch Micron. Shares are up nearly two and a half percent now. Meanwhile, guys, is Netflix still running up that profit hill? Well, Piper seems to think so. We will tell you why after the break. Those shares are up marginally. Stay with us. Let's get a gut check on Netflix. Piper Sandler lowering their price target from $293 to $210, reiterating neutral on the streaming giant, calling it the company a business in transition, staying cautious despite the very strong release of Stranger Things season four. I can tell you a lot of folks around here have been watching it. They call it the season's debut short-term relief. But as subscriber growth slows in a crowded streaming market, Sandler says their ad-supported platform looks promising, but it will take time, adding they still see password sharing as an issue. Shares started lower this morning, but they are currently up about one-third of a percent, down 70% year-to-date still, which really puts it in perspective. Uh, We will be right back.
3: venture capital names are moving beyond their wheelhouse. The information reporting that Bessemer Venture Partners is the latest VC to apply for status as a registered investment advisor with the SEC. This allows the firm to diversify its portfolio from direct stakes in private companies to secondary shares, as well as other investments like public equities and crypto. Bessemer hardly the first household name to change their status. Sequoia and Graycroft made that move back in January Upfront and thrive last year. And Andreessen made the change all the way back in 2019. Bit of a chapter shift here, Dee.
0: Yeah, it's interesting because they're very different sets of skills, right? You look at Sequoia, Batsomore, they've had a lot of success picking early stage companies, John. Can they apply that to the public markets? In the case of Sequoia, at least, it's been a rough start. I mean, think about if they had cashed out in DoorDash and Unity right away or even a year after those companies went public, their returns would look a lot better. However, a way to gain more in fees, perhaps?
5: Well, I think we risk overcomplicating it. I'm trying to look at it like this. These are investors who thrive uh, on giant returns and they want to hold more public companies at a time where the mainstream thinks, oh boy, these software companies, high growth, they've plummeted, they're trash, leave them alone. These investors want to pick up probably more of those. Investors who still got some cash on the sidelines, Watch. Think about that. It's, to me, it's similar to, yeah. uh, to watching insider buying. Uh, you, can probably, you can probably get something from that. And
0: they do have a lot of cash.
5: Yeah. I mean, they're rich. They're super rich people. <laughs> They've always got a lot of cash, indeed, as you, as you mentioned, Dee. And then meanwhile, are you looking for a good summer podcast? Something for the beach? Well, follow and subscribe to Tech Check. It's a podcast. Listen anytime, anywhere, wherever you download podcasts. We're back in just a moment.
3: Once again, uh, Europe closes and we take a tiny leg higher here in the states. We're back to 37.67. John, uh, we'll see if that if it can it be that simple. Uh, difficult to tell. Uh, but one thing is for sure, there has been some relief in uh, yields and with oil back to 99, some relief in energy too.
5: Is this allowed? I mean, that the Dow is down 1.8 percent and the Nasdaq only off 0.3. <laughs> Isn't it supposed to, right? Isn't the Nasdaq supposed to have the
0: worst narrative session? violation, John? Right.
5: <laughs> Uh, Speaking of narrative violations, one more thing. We talked a lot about Amazon CEO Andy Jassy today. So what's founder Jeff Bezos up to? Well, he is getting more vocal on Twitter. For one, calling out President Biden for requesting gas stations to bring down prices at the pump. Tweeting, ouch, inflation is far too important a problem for the White House to keep making statements like this. It's either straight ahead misdirection or a deep misunderstanding of basic market dynamics. D, um interesting choice to, to take the White House on yeah. uh, on this topic. The White House certainly hasn't been shy lately about uh, throwing a few blows Amazon's way.
0: Yeah, so he's, he's pushing back. I was checking out uh, Andy Jassy's Twitter, guys. It is decidedly less interesting. There's no subtweeting, no responding even. Uh, he did tweet about Prime Day, though, which is coming up. Speaking of risk asset, guys, and the Nasdaq outperforming the other indices. Take a look at Bitcoin. It's actually still below 20,000. Um, so even though it's been acting like a risk asset, not really at the moment, it's still below that important milestone. Carl.
3: Uh, Yeah, recovering 20K, uh, according to some chartists, uh, is pretty important. By the way, uh, tomorrow's already Wednesday since we're in a holiday-shortened week, which means we're going to get the Fed minutes uh, tomorrow. Uh, They might have a bit of a hawkish tone. Uh, We're going to keep our eye out for any pre-announcements, as we were doing last week. No ADP tomorrow because they're taking the month off to revise their methodology, but uh, we'll have to go with the estimates on what Jobs Friday may actually bring. For now, though, Dow down 590. Let's get to Frank Holland and the half. You've been listening to CNBC's Tech Check. You can always catch us live weekdays at 11 a.m.
9: This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do.